This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I know I say I have an extra special guest all the time, but I really have an extra special guest. His name is James Montier. You know him from his years as partners with Albert Edwards at both Dresdner and Society Generale. He is currently on the asset allocation team at GMO, and I know James in passing for many years, and I have been chasing him down to come into the studio to record uh, one of our little chats, and he is so difficult to pin down. He is located uh, in the hinterlands of the UK. He's not even in London. He's hiding in an undisclosed location north of uh, north of the city. Uh and he is in and out of Boston and New York so frequently, it's tough to grab him. But since we're all sheltering in place and he has nowhere to go, I was able to pin him down for the better part of an hour and got to ask him about half of the questions I want to. Uh, James is really a fascinating thinker. Uh, he describes that as his job. He gets paid to sit and think about the difficult questions that other people don't want to think about. He also uh, has written pretty extensively, not only about behavioral investing and finance, but about some of the challenges of, of being a value investor and looking at markets from a perspective of having a margin of safety. Regardless, you will find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. He is a really thoughtful, intriguing guy, and he did not hold back at all. So with no further ado, my conversation with GMO's James Montier. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is James Montier. He is a member of the investment committee for GMO, the famed investment farm headed by Jeremy Grantham. Previously, he worked at Dresner as well as Society Generale as a market strategist. He has an ardent reputation on Wall Street. He has been named best strategist a number of years and has a reputation as both a bear and a value manager. James Montier, welcome to a shelter-in-place edition of Masters in Business. Thank you very much, Barry. It's a delight to be here. Let's talk a little bit about your current gig. You're working at GMO, where you've been for a couple of years. But before you started at GMO, you were at Society Generale. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your role there. Sure. So um, I've done a lot of things over the years, and incredibly, I've been at GMO for for over a decade now, um, which is is startling um, and testament to how time flies when you're actually uh, enjoying yourself. Um, So what I do at GMO is is essentially ask the questions that people don't want to be asked. Uh, I finally found a, a, a job that I am perfectly suited for. My job is to think about all the places we could be wrong. Um, whether that's in in kind of uh, the micro level uh, or indeed at the macro level. So I spend all of my time worrying about what the models are missing um, for part of my job. Uh, And then the other part of my job is is really thumping the table when when things get cheap. Um, So when I joined GMO, uh, Jeremy uh, said to me, look, one of the things that we really want you to do is, is when you think things are cheap, really, really scream and shout and make sure that we're not missing out. Um, I've only had to do that a couple of times, uh, which is a, a sad reflection on the state of the markets that uh, 
I've, I've had to sit through for the last decade or so. Um, but it is, uh, it, it's a kind of perfect job. There are essentially two jobs at GMO you would love and, and one that you, you really wouldn't want. Um, the, the two that you would love are, are the one that, that Jeremy has as, as chief strategist uh, and the one that I have, which is effectively um, minister without portfolio. Uh, the one you really wouldn't want to have is, is poor old Ben, uh, Ben Inca, the head of asset allocation, because he gets to sit there and has to kind of listen to Jeremy and listen to me and then try and build that into a, a real portfolio. So uh, his is the job you, you definitely wouldn't want. Um, mine is, is, a, is a pretty sweet gig. So part of your description is to pound the table when things get cheap. Markets just dropped 35% last month. Was there any table pounding going on at GMO, or did they not get cheap enough? The, the, there, there, was, uh, there was indeed some table pounding going on. I was getting very, very excited uh, about um, uh, particularly non-U.S.-based equities. The U.S. didn't get cheap enough for, for my particular uh, brand of value, but um, emerging markets uh, were looking really, really cheap, um, and a lot of the international markets, uh, Europe was was looking pretty, uh, pretty damned exciting as well. So there was uh, a, f a fair amount of, of table pounding, and hence the reason I, I actually put pen to paper uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and wrote uh, a piece on fear and the psychology of bear markets to um, to try and galvanise people to to action, um, because it, it struck me that this was. One of those opportunities where, where prices and fundamentals were potentially getting dislocated. So let's talk about the prior time prices really got cheap. You and your partner over at Sockgen and Dresner, Albert Edwards, were famously bearish heading into the 0809 crisis. What were you looking at that had made you that negative on equities prior to the great financial crisis? So I think from, from our perspective, there were a kind of number of events that were going on um, that, that really kind of triggered our caution. But the most obvious one was kind of the uh, immense housing bubble that, that we've been talking about for, in fairness, a couple of years before the GFC. So as usual, um, with most of my work, I, I find it's, it's best to read it. Uh, then put it in a drawer and forget about it for two years and then take it out and, and actually act on it. Um, because it seems to take about that long for, for my, my sense of timing to come good. Um, but it, it, was, it was really the housing market and the, the economic imbalances that were so um, obvious to anyone who, who kind of studied the flow of funds, who, who looked at the sectoral balances for the U.S. Um, they, they were just such obvious, glaring um, imbalances that, that were unsustainable um, and as ever, an unsustainable process uh, can't go on forever, but it, it generally goes on for longer than one imagines. And that was one of the, uh, the things that we were really battling with um, was, was the kind of when. And, and it is every time when we, when we get bearish, it, it's the, the when um, is always the problem. But the, the economic imbalances were just so marked that it was, it was hard not to be uh, bearish. Couple that with what was a pretty damned expensive market um, on yeah, a simple Schiller-style valuation, a cyclically adjusted PE, and it, it led us to be yeah as bearish as, as I think we'd probably ever been. Yeah, that, that timing issue is always problematic because, as we've seen over various cycles, expensive stocks can get much more expensive and cheap stocks can get much cheaper. It, it, is it really just a two-year lag? How do you deal with 
I guess we could call that the momentum issue when you're looking at either cheap or pricey stocks. Yeah, it's, it is. It is a momentum issue. You're absolutely right. And it, it is both momentum in, in terms of uh, the movement of prices and also momentum in, in terms of uh, the underlying economics of the situation as well on occasion. Uh, and I think the, the way I've been forced to reconcile it is to say, look, I simply don't know. I, I never know when something is going to, to unravel. Um, I can often see the, the, the unsustainable nature of what is happening, but it doesn't tell me anything about timing. And I think that's one of the things that, that really harks back to some of the writings of, of Ben Graham. You know, ben Graham said there were two ways of thinking um, uh, about uh, investing in the market, the way of timing and the, the way of pricing. Um, and the way of timing was trying to effectively guess what was going to happen. Um, and that is essentially next to impossible as far as I am concerned. I think there are potentially people who can do it. I just know that I am definitely not one of them. Um, and on the other hand, there is the way of pricing. And on the way of pricing, you, you simply follow the rules of valuation. Now, if you're going to do that, you're going to need to have a long time horizon. And that is one of the most important, if not the most important corollary of being a value-based investor, is you're going to have to be long-term. And the problem is, of course, as, as we well know, everybody starts off as a long-term investor. Uh, but as soon as they hit a, a patch of poor performance, they become uh, rather too short-term. Um, and that is why I think so many people struggle with the whole um, staying true to being a value-based investor over any length of time. Sounds like the Mike Tyson quote, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. You're saying the best laid plans of of investors work great until there's a little volatility and turbulence like we've seen earlier this year. Exactly right. It's it's precisely that. It's it's easy to have a plan. Um, It's the discipline of sticking to that plan. And it's one of the reasons that I, I, I enjoy my time at GMO so much is because we have a discipline. We have uh, a series of valuation-based forecasts that help us anchor. Um, and in psychology, as you know, I, I have a, a great interest in psychology. Um, there is an expression which is, if you cannot de-bias, then rebias. And what that really means is it's incredibly hard to stop people being people. Um, it is our very nature. So instead of trying to stop them being um, people, the, the best thing to do is to try and knowing they're going to fall into these behavioral pitfalls is to design a process that will actually allow them to um, benefit from uh, those uh, same behavioral pitfalls. It's kind of like nudge, if you like. Um, And and the the way that we do it is to have that valuation discipline. So when the world is falling apart, our value models are, all else being equal, going to be saying, hey, look, things are getting cheap. You should be buying. Um, Now, we are just as much human as everybody else and are likely to sit around and go, well, you know, what, are, what don't the models know? What, what, are, you know why, what happens if the world does end tomorrow? That kind of thing. But having that conversation is at least a step in the right direction and seeing those numbers when you're seeing you have double-digit rates of, of prospective return, um, you have to be really, really sure that you know something the, the model doesn't in order to override it. Let's talk about um, behavior and valuation. I love this quote of yours. Leaving the trees could have been our first mistake. Our minds are suited to solving problems related to our survival rather than being optimized for investing decisions. Explain that, if you would. Of course. So I think it's, it's kind of important that we acknowledge uh, that the we are the way we are because of evolution. 
um, evolution has, has designed us to work. But evolution is, in essence, a glacial process. It does not uh, reflect the world we live in. Um, you know, we are really designed for the African savanna of 150,000 years ago, uh, not uh, certainly the, the industrial age of 100 years ago, let alone the information age in which we find ourselves drowning today. So I think that the, the brain is uh, a product of those same evolutionary forces that have designed us in every other regard. And that means our brains are not well adapted to the problems we're trying to solve. And so if we think about fear as a really good example of this, um, in evolutionary terms, the cost of getting it wrong is, is pretty terrible. So if you see a, a, a twig and uh, you, you think it's a snake, that's fine, right? It, it, you stepped out of the way, you took a, a slightly wider path, but it was fine. Get that wrong and the downside is, is potentially um, pretty pretty terrible. If you think it was a twig and you step on it and it turns out it was a snake and it bites you, you are evolutionary toast. Um, and so the brain is, is designed to work in a certain way. And when it comes to fear, uh, it's designed to, to make very short, quick decisions that will keep us alive. Now, the problem is that when it comes to investing, uh, and let's say markets are falling, as they obviously have been um, over the last month or so, um, then what we're doing is, is we're triggering that fear response. Uh, and there was a wonderful behavior experiment um, by uh, Shiv and, and some co-authors um, who, who looked at the impact of fear uh, on investment decision-making. And they, they, they set up a really simple game where you got to choose uh, over 20 rounds, each round, whether you wanted to invest. And they wanted to see if you uh, suffered a loss in the previous round, would it impact your decision to invest in the next round? And obviously it shouldn't if you were rational. Um, but what they found was for, for normal people, uh, people like you and I, um, that actually it did. It, when you lost money in the previous round, they were much, much less likely to invest in the next round. That wasn't true for a subset of people they examined, and that subset were very unusual. Um, they had a specific form of brain damage, which meant that they could no longer feel fear. Uh, their amygdala, which is one of the brain's center of fear, had been irreparably damaged. Um, and so they behaved much more like um, a model of rationality. They invested irrespective of the outcome in the previous round. So our brains are, are designed by this process of evolution to work in certain ways that keep us alive, but don't give us necessarily the correct outcome when it comes to the world in which we're trying to, to think today in investing. So the secret to good investing is really just a modest amount of brain damage. I, I'm standing by that, and, and I'm pretty sure most of my friends would attest to that. <laughs> I, I can't say I can't say I disagree with that. So so, or or if not brain damage, at least a little bit of behavior control that doesn't look like the typical normal human being and is a little more embracing of risk than our evolutionary history might imply. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so let's talk a little bit about how some of these behavioral biases manifest themselves among investors. Uh, when I look around the world and, and I look at some of the areas that you have described as cheap, emerging markets, Europe, uh, elsewhere, especially away from the United States, investors seem to really 
hate those areas and have voted with their dollars. How much of this is a rational response to problems in EM and problems in Europe? And how much of this is just being too fearful for attractively priced stocks? Yeah, that is the the, the, the pertinent and perennial question that one has to ask. Um, and the answer is we, we can never be sure, I, or at least anyone who says they're sure is, is probably a liar or a fool or some linear combination of the two, um, because you can't know. And so all you can do is say, have I got sufficient margin of safety? And it goes back to good old Ben Graham. Um, and I know I sound like a broken record, always quoting Ben Graham, but to me, he really is one of the most insightful uh, of, of uh, history's uh, examples of great investors, um, because he always said you have to operate with a margin of safety because you know that if you're dealing with something like EM, yes, they have much lower legal standards, much poorer corporate governance than, than say, the U.S. does. Uh, but we all know that, and that's already in the price. And so if those things then look really cheap, you're like, well, look, let's take Gazprom as an example, uh, the, the, the Russian energy company. It trades on a, a PE of about two times. Um, which is clearly ludicrous. Nobody thinks Gazprom is worth two. It's either worth zero, uh, because Putin thinks it belongs to him, um, or it's worth a lot more than two. But it trades on two. Um, and you're like, well, look, I am being paid a lot to take on that risk. Now, if push comes to shove, I will probably lose, because Putin owns tanks and I own bits of paper, and his tanks will trump my bits of paper. But I, every year that I, I get that carry on, on Gazprom, it's paying out a dividend yield of, of, of 6 7%. Um, that's a very nice return for taking that degree of risk um, every year without any worry about anything else. Uh, and ultimately, you know, as long as you size a position like that appropriately, uh, I think it, it just makes a great deal of sense because your margin of safety is so high. So what are the credible reasons for this ongoing gap in valuations between a country like the United States that arguably still has the rule of law and countries like Russia that have been described as, you know, a criminal organization with a standing army. How can an investor confidently put money at risk in a place like China, like Russia, where you never know how the rules are going to change from quarter to quarter, month to month. It's it. That is, and that is why they, they trade cheap, right? You're absolutely right. You, you, you have a lower degree of confidence and you have to scale your positions appropriately. Uh, so you, you don't put everything into Russia. You don't put everything into China. You build a diversified portfolio uh, across any number of, of countries, um, ranging from yeah, the, the ones with the greatest corporate governance risk, China and Russia, up to, to places that have considerably less, Taiwan, Korea. Um, they're not perfect by any means, but you are being compensated an awful lot for the risks involved, uh, right now at least. Not always the case, but right now, that is the, 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 the return you are getting, I think, way outweighs the, the, the risks you are undertaking. Um, and so to me, the, the arithmetic of the situation says, look, size it appropriately and invest with a degree of, of confidence, um, but acknowledge the fact that, yes, you are taking on more risk and therefore you, you want that greater return. That's why these things are priced at a discount, even under normal times. Now, right now, that discount is way wider than normal times. 
so your margin of safety is, is much greater than, than average, uh, which is why these things, to me, look very attractive. So, so speaking of that giant spread between EM and developed nations, especially the U.S., I'm assuming you're predicating some of this on the concept of mean reversion, that eventually stocks that are expensive will come down in price, stocks that are cheap will rise in price, and things will revert to normal. But we've seen like a decade of EM underperforming the U.S. Are you counting on mean reversion to, to shift this, or is something more fundamental happening that's kept this spread as wide as it's been for as long as it's been? Well, it's, a, it's, it's exactly the debate that we have had internally, interestingly. That, strangely enough, given how uh, wrong we have been on the U.S., um, it, is, it is certainly the, the question that we have spent an inordinate amount of time trying to uh, understand is how, how could we be wrong? What could stop mean reversion? Uh, what are, what are the, the, the rational reasons for the U.S. having such a, a premium valuation relative to the rest of the world? Um, and unfortunately, when, when we've done that, I've, I've, personally, I have found most of the explanations to be very wanting. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the most common ones, low interest rates, just doesn't cut the mustard uh, on, on multiple different levels. Um, first, there is no provable relationship between interest rates and valuation. Uh, second, there are any number of other countries that have low interest rates, Europe, um, Japan for forever, um, yet they haven't enjoyed high multiples. Um, so you, you, you automatically begin to question the, the sanity of, of that statement that, that low rates are the, the justification for high multiples. I think the one where I have perhaps the, the most sympathy um, but still not, uh, I, I don't find overwhelmingly compelling, is that the U.S. has um, higher quality companies. Um, and I think that is, in essence, true. There are some exceptional businesses that happen to be domiciled in the U.S., uh, but I, I simply don't think it justifies the degree of the premium uh, that, that we witness. Um, and so I come down still on the side of, mean reversion, yes, it's, it's taken a long time, and, and that's how you end up with cheap markets, right, or expensive markets, is if they go on for a long time, and Rudy Dornbush always used to say these things go on for longer than you expect and then end faster than you expect, um, and they've certainly fulfilled the first part of that uh, over, over the last decade, where emerging has got cheaper and cheaper, uh, and the U.S. has become more and more expensive. Um, so certainly our... our, our uh, our faith has been well and truly tested. But as of yet, I haven't found a compelling, sensible explanation that explains that differential. I think it was at SockGen, you penned a piece that I've always really liked called The Seven Immutable Laws of Investing. That, that's got to be at least a decade old, right? Uh, that one was, yeah, I think I wrote that for GMO, actually. So it's about a decade old. Tell us how you assembled that list. It's a nice run of seven different bullet points. We'll, we'll go over some of them. But what was the process like of putting that list together? It was, it was really a, a, an exercise in, in trying to distill um, the experience of, of myself and, and many others um, into something that was easily digestible. Uh, and uh, as I realized, as I described that, I, I've 
committed what one of the sins I, I hate, which is kind of the great dumbing down of, of everything. Um, the, the reduction of, of anything important to 240 characters drives me to, to distraction. Uh, and I, I suddenly struck that the seven immutable laws was an attempt to do exactly that, which is somewhat embarrassing. Um, but uh, it was really about trying to distill the wisdom um, of a great deal of, of um, investors past, who I had respected, Ben Graham, John Maynard Keynes, Sir John Templeton, uh, Warren Buffett, obviously, numerous others, um, and, and really come down to a list of, of things that I would held to be always true, um, that if I had to, to kind of pass this on to my kids without ever being able to talk to them again, what would I tell them were the kind of the rules they had to follow um, in order to, to make sensible investment decisions. So you've mentioned always insist on a margin of safety, which I associate with both Ben Graham and Seth Klarman, who had a book of the same name. Let, let's talk about rule number two, which I'm going to assume is channeling John Templeton. This time is never different. Explain the thinking behind that. Right. So I think that the, that was really born out of thinking about um, our experience of bubbles. Uh, I'm particularly talking with my, my former colleague and, and very good friend, Edward Chancellor, um, who wrote a wonderful book called Devil Takes the Hindmost, um, which is a, an extraordinary history of, of speculative mania. Um, and it struck me that uh, looking at, at his work, looking at uh, Charles Kindleberger's Manias, Panics and Crashes, um, there were an awful lot of, of similarities um, to our experience with manias, bubbles, and, and these kinds of environments. Um, of course, the details are always different, um, but actually there is a, a core of rhyming within each of these experiences that is always true. And therefore, uh, it was indeed Sir John Templeton who said um, the... Um, the four most dangerous words is, uh, of this time is never different. Probably five most dangerous words in investing. Uh, this time is never different. Uh, Jeremy uh, Grantham takes a, a slightly different view um, and, and says from a value manager's perspective, uh, the, the most dangerous words are uh, this time is, 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 uh, is, is never different in, in a slightly different way. Um, he points out that he, we constantly assume mean reversion um, and perhaps that, that that can be an error sometimes. Um, so that they become um, pretty pretty dangerous. Whereas uh, everybody seems to believe to me that this time is different is the, the usual explanation. So the tech bubble is the prime example. Uh, going through the tech bubble, oh, you don't understand, this time is different because bang, 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 bang. Um, which it, it just, it's never been true yet. Um, I didn't understand that shiny phones were going to change the world back then. Um, in fact, they, they did. The Internet did change uh, uh, the world in, in ways that I couldn't even begin to imagine, uh, but generally not in a highly profitable fashion, um, and certainly not the fashion that people were pricing in in, in 1999-2000. So to me, remembering that this time is never different is really just reminding ourselves that human experience is, is sadly not linear. It, it tends to be more cyclical. Seth Klarman, who, whose book you mentioned, The Margin of Safety, uh, has uh, a, a wonderful uh, discussion in it about collateralized bond obligations um, during uh, the, the early 1990s, which have unparally, un uncanny parallels with uh, the experience with um, 
collateralized loan obligations in in 2000, uh, 2007, 2008. Um, and so you, you, you constantly find that um, the, these parallels come back. Um, and Galbraith had a, a nice expression, which was um, um, the world keeps going and, and we, finance is the one industry where we keep reinventing the wheel each time in a slightly more unstable fashion, um, which I kind of like as a, a summation of, of most of the kind of problems of finance. But remembering that this time is, is never different is, is just a, a reminder that, hey, we've seen most of this before. We've seen this movie before. We know how it ends, and it generally doesn't end well. So the asset classes and the circumstances and the specifics may change from cycle to cycle, but it sounds like human nature itself is immutable. Exactly, right? Precisely. So there's a couple of others that, that I like. Be patient and wait for the fat pitch. That that sounds like you're channeling Warren Buffett there a bit. Exactly. That That is definitely a, a Buffettism. Um, the, the fat pitch and Ted Williams and I had to learn a lot about baseball to understand that one, um, which is not easy, as you can tell from my accent. Um, but uh, once I got my hang of it, I said, oh, yeah, I get it. Um, really about waiting for those good opportunities. You know, that there are long amounts of time when doing nothing is the right thing to do. And that's really hard because people expect uh, their investment managers to, to be active, to be doing stuff. But there are long periods when there are no fat pitches, in which case, you shouldn't be doing stuff. Um, don't uh, don't do something just fit there kind of thing, um, and and that can be very hard to to justify. But ultimately, makes, makes a lot of sense. it allows you to right. It allows you to exploit the opportunities when they do come along. So number four is a real challenge because uh, I'm I'm reminded in the scene uh, 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 from the Monty Python movie Life of Brian where Brian is speaking to the multitudes and says, you're all individuals, you're all different, and every one of them repeats in unison, we are all individuals, we are all <laughs> different. And, and number four is be a contrarian. How challenging is it to be a contrarian with so much career risk and so much peer pressure to do what the crowd is doing? Absolutely. And, and it, it's really, I think, the, the essence of investing. Um, and you can trace that back to, to Ben Graham, to, to Maynard Keynes. Um, they, they all have quotes. In fact, every good value investor, I think, has a quote uh, on the importance of being contrarian. Um, and one of the, the contributions that I think um, Jeremy Grantham has, has really made to our understanding of that is why it is so hard to do. And, and there are two different sources of, of hurdles, if you like, that we have to overcome. One is, is human nature. Human nature tells us that it is warmer and safer in the middle of the herd and we should probably stay there. Um, we don't like to look different with social animals. And then there is, on the other, the other set of hurdles are really what one would describe as um, the institutional imperative, and, and that's really Keynes's uh, observation about career risk. Uh, which is obviously it is far better for reputation to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally. Um, and the combination of those two, that, that innate human desire to be similar to other people, and then the uh, overlay of the institutional framework um, really do make it incredibly hard to be a contrarian. Uh, but ultimately, 
this is a Templeton quote, uh, if you want different results from other people, you have to do something different from other people. Um, and so we, we, we end up there saying, okay, you, ha you just have to be a contrarian. It doesn't mean you have to be a blind contrarian. It doesn't mean you have to be unthinking. Uh, I, I suggest both of those are foolish. Uh, but I think ultimately you have to be prepared to look different uh, if you want to achieve a decent set of investment results, or at least different ones. And that is something that people find incredibly hard to do. So you wrote these in 2011. They're published on the GMO site. If you were rewriting this list today, would you change any? Would you shift the order around? How has a decade altered your perception of this list of seven immutable laws of investing? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad to say I wouldn't rewrite any of them. Um, I, I, I'm glad to say the immutable part is still true. Um, I, I never really thought about the order. They, they were just kind of, I didn't write them in any specific order of importance. Um, and so I think all seven of them are, are probably as true today as, as they were um, when I wrote them. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to say I, I definitely wouldn't um, rewrite any of them. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your role at GMO. What does being on the asset allocation team there entail? So it's, it's, my role is, is a research role, um, and, and that's one that I, I, I thrive on. Um, I enjoy, and enjoy solving puzzles. And to me, investing is perhaps the ultimate puzzle. Uh, it, it's never exactly the same, um, and there are always uncertainties. And really, um, my job is, is to, to sit there and, and think. Um, my, my children asked me, um, my daughter turned around to me and said, what do you do for a living, Dad? Uh, and I said, well, I think. Um, and, and she was, I don't think, enormously enamored with that answer. Uh, but it is essentially what I am paid to do. Uh, I, I'm paid to sit here and, and think about life, the universe, and everything, um, and really understand as much of that as I can and make sure that, that we are investing in a way that, that kind of makes sense. That, that reference sounded like a uh, Douglas Adams title. So, uh, so let, yeah, me right. have you th let me have you think about uh, uh, something that I, I find, a puzzle that I find quite fascinating and challenging, and it has to do with valuations. And the question is this. The world has changed over the past century, does it make sense to compare valuations of today with those in the 1930s and 40s or, or the 1980s and 90s? How has the inherent capital structure of companies, what they need in terms of labor and material, changed from, I don't know, five, ten decades ago versus today's fast light, uh, two, two founders and a laptop and, and the Amazon cloud – versus tons and tons of steel and factories and thousands of employees. Do we really have the same valuation, met valuation metrics today that we had early last century? It's, a, it's an extraordinarily good question. I think that there is, there is a, another Ben Graham quote, which is uh, effectively um, that the, the only constant is change. Uh, and it is certainly true, right? And I, I totally understand that when one's comparing long runs of data, let's say looking at a, a, a Schiller Cape PE, um, in the 1880s, that reflected an environment which was essentially mainly railroads. 
um, today that does not seem like a terribly useful proxy for uh, anything of any interest. Uh, however, I think it is worth pointing out that uh, in the 1880s, railroads were, were cutting edge. Right? Um, they were uh, the railroad bone booms of the 1840s and 1870s um, were, were the cutting edge of technology. And so I think the stock market obviously evolves over time. Its composition evolves over time. Uh, but it is often with a strong um, technological bias. And there's a wonderful uh, book by uh, a friend of mine called Sandy, his name is Sandy Nairn, and the book is called The Engines That Move Markets. He, he actually worked as the uh, head of research uh, uh, for Templeton um, a long time ago. Um, and uh, in that book, he traces all of these waves of technological innovation from the railroads through uh, to the telegraphs, to, to radio, to television, to the automobiles, etc. Um, and the one thing they all have in common is they start off generating enormous returns. People then drive the prices up to a bubble uh, or something that approximates a bubble. They, they effectively extrapolate profitability uh, into prices. Um, and eventually that bubble unwinds because the gains of that technology end up with the consumers, not the producers. Um, and to me, that is why I think that we get these, these kind of historical echoes and it makes some sense to uh, to say, hey, look, there are some constants in valuation. That isn't to say every valuation metric is perfect. It isn't. Uh, price to book is a really good example. Price to book gets distorted by uh, things like buybacks. Um, and so you end up with companies with negative book value, which is essentially economically meaningless. Um, and so you, you have to kind of, you can't take um, these, these things at face value and say, hey, look, uh, yeah, McDonald's is trading on a negative book value. Yeah, because it's done an enormous amount of buybacks. Um, and so I think you do have to, to uh, apply some, some thought. And, and Ben Inker, um, my boss, said to me the other day, uh, we were having a discussion in a group, and, and he said, we always reserve the right to use our brains. Uh, and I think that is a, a sounder a piece of advice as I can imagine. We should always reserve the right to use our brains. Um, and there will be times when you, you want to question stuff. Um, the role of the stock market itself has changed. Um, the stock market used to be a method of, of financing companies. That hasn't been true since um, really the mid-1980s. Um, companies do not, in general, come to the market um, to, to, to raise uh, capital in, in equities unless they IPO. Everybody else doesn't. And so uh, the amount of buybacks far outstrips the amount of, of IPOs. Uh, and so what we actually see is negative issuance. So there are differences that it's important to recognize. Uh, and one does have to think carefully about the valuation metrics uh, that one chooses to use. But I think uh, a lot of them, and, and the, the higher the aggregate level, the, the more they make sense. So looking at a, a Schiller or Cake PE for the aggregate market, I think is, is a lot more sensible than trying to look at Apple or Google or Amazon's Schiller PE, which I, I think is, is pretty meaningless. Um, so I think it does depend on, on the uh, level of the analysis and the, the particular specifics of the analysis. Uh, so using one's brain is, is highly recommended. Huh. Can't, can't say I argue with any of that. Let, let me have you use your brain on another... Uh, issue that that I've been, and I think a lot of people have been perplexed by, and that's the issue of negative interest rates at a lot of 
uh, industrialized nations. We we briefly saw some short-term treasuries go negative in the United States. What does it mean to see so much of the world dabbling with negative interest rates? And are we going to see this in the United States? It's fascinating, right? Because people, central banks, when they when they take rates negative, uh, I, I genuinely don't understand what they're thinking. Um, I can get why you want to take late rates row, low if you're a central banker. I do not understand negative interest rates because negative interest rates are a tax on banks. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. I, I'm perfectly happy to tax banks. Uh, but from a, uh, a policy response to uh, effectively trying to uh, create an economic stimulus, one of the things I do remember from economics is that the taxes are, are a, a leakage. They're a break on, on economics, not, not, a, not a stimulus. Um, and so, therefore, relying on negative interest rates to try and boost activity, I think, is, is kind of weird. Um, I don't think it makes a great deal of economic sense. Um, I think it also kind of blows up a lot of people's models because uh, an awful lot of, of modern-day asset pricing, for, for better or worse, uh, takes it, its cue from, from the, uh, the interest rates. Now, much as I don't think that's particularly sensible, um, I do acknowledge that a lot of people behave that way. Um, and it does strike me that the negative interest rate could potentially muck up quite a lot of, of, of that approach. Um, and so I, I think it's, uh, it's an odd policy um, with unknown consequences, um, which I, I do not think should be pursued lightly. Um, as to whether the U.S. is, is ever going to get there, I have absolutely no idea. Um, if I if I go back um, 20 years, I, I, I used to be one of those people who said uh, oh, interest rates can't go below zero because um, you know, it seems so unthinkable. Um, and yet um, I probably should have to go back more than a decade, right? Two decades for me to have been saying that. Um, but uh, fast forward and um, uh, there we are. We, we've seen them. So um, never say never, I guess. Right. It, it, it ain't called the zero bound for nothing, although I guess maybe it right. was. So, so let me ask yeah, you right, a exactly. uh, let let me ask you a different policy question. You seem to be somewhat enamored of modern monetary theory, which basically says stop freaking out over deficits. If the government issues currency and it's it's has control of its own currency and can issue debt that people want to buy, deficits aren't the end of the world. Tell us a little bit. Uh, in this election year, what you think about modern monetary theory and what it means for how we should be assessing how governments will be interacting with markets. Yeah, I think MMT, modern monetary theory, is um, uh, it, it, that, that very um, that, that label tends to, to get people's hackles rising, right? It's, um, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's, it's on the right or the left, and, and people get very upset and, and very passionate and start throwing Zimbabwe around as, and, and hyperinflation in Venezuela and those sorts of things. Um, but actually, I, I think it, that the core of what I perceive as, of monetary, modern monetary theory is uh, a descriptive model of how the world actually works. Um, and it says that uh, effectively, governments don't have to finance uh, their, their deficits if, as you say, they are what we call monetarily sovereign, i.e. They, they issue uh, bonds in a currency which they control. 
So it is absolutely uh, a description of the US, Japan and the UK. It is absolutely not a description of the Eurozone, uh, where the, the countries obviously uh, issue debt in euros, which they, they don't control. Uh, that's in the hands of, of the ECB. Um, so I think there is this, this kind of common belief that governments are, are really like households. Um, they have to live within their means. Um, and I think that's just fundamentally false as a paradigm. Uh, and I think when you begin to understand the way that um, governments spend uh, and, and potentially the reason why even money exists, um, it it's really exists as a uh, form of debt settlement. Uh, and that is true pretty much as far back as anybody can go. Um, the, the, the geld is the word for, for guilt, an obligation, um, which is, is the, the, um, the, the historical uh, form of money. Um, and so I think it, it, to my mind, um, MMT is a much more uh, accurate description of the way the world works and therefore understanding how the world works, which is ultimately kind of my aim in life, is, is, goes back to uh, the topic we were on earlier. I'm, I'm paid to sit and think and try and understand the world. Um, well, MMT to me offers a much better framework for understanding the way the world works than uh, a lot of, of other economics. Uh, and it does lead one to, to say that, look, budget deficits are, are not nearly as problematic uh, as, as people believe. You know, there's a school of thought that they lead to incredibly high interest rates. Well, just look at the evidence. Uh, that's not the case right now, and it hasn't been the case in Japan for a very, very long time, where they've run uh, very low interest rates and, and very big um, government deficits. And quite rightly, uh, they've had to do that. Um, but it, it certainly those deficits haven't led to high interest rates. Um, then you get people turning around and saying, oh, well, printing money to, to finance budget deficits is inflationary. And you're like, really? Uh, where's the evidence for that? Um, first of all, governments uh, don't actually worry about printing money. It's how they've always acted. Uh, you have to print money in order to, to spend it um, and to get it into circulation before people can even pay their taxes. Um, so there's, there's kind of a... Uh, a whole series of myths that people have um, that are, are very much uh, caught up with the, the analogy of, of governments and households. And it's certainly true for households. They cannot live sustainably uh, beyond their means. But it is not the case for government. Um, huh. they, can, they can, as long as they uh, meet the criteria we, we talked about earlier, that they, they are absolutely capable of going out and spending. It, it's very interesting that today we see a much broader acceptance of that um, in the response to the various um, corona outbreaks around the world. And here in the UK, we, where government is underwriting 80% of people's wages. Um, and, and that would have been unthinkable. Uh, we, we, you know, we uh, saw for, the for a conservative government. Right. We, we saw what happened post-financial crisis when the Austerians were in control and were more focused about balancing budgets than helping the economy recover, that didn't end especially well in the UK or the United States, did it? No, exactly right. In the US, you had the, the, the slowest and weakest recovery ever. Um, and in the UK, it was a total disaster. Um, we, we essentially didn't have any recovery. Um, and so the, the Austerians and, and the, the kind of advocates of, of sound finance, which is the balance, you must balance the budget, etc., uh, I think uh, are at odds with sensible evidence-based 
economics. And, and I'm a big fan of evidence-based anything, evidence-based medicine, evidence-based investing, evidence-based economics. Uh, one should always mark one's beliefs to, to market, check the, the real world, see how it looks. So last quote of yours before we get to our speed rounds, and I want you to expound on this. Don't equate happiness with money. Materialistic pursuits are not a path to sustainable happiness. Explain. So, uh, yeah, a long time ago, um, I, I wrote a couple of notes on, on how to be happy. Um, and it just struck me as something that uh, I, I spent a long time working at investment banks at that stage. Um, and I, I kind of was, was slightly worried that I looked into people's eyes and it was like staring into the zombies' eyes. They're, they're, the lights were on, but nobody was home. Um, and they seemed dead on the inside. And I, I really couldn't fathom how that could happen. Um, and I, I began to, to do some research on, on happiness and, and the science of happiness. Uh, and it turns out that there are a number of people who have, have thought about happiness. Um, and one of the, the big difficulties is that people tend to uh, associate happiness with, with uh, wealth or, or income. And don't get me wrong, a certain level of income is necessary. Um, but, but beyond that level of uh, kind of uh, that threshold, it really isn't obvious that, that greater increases in wealth and income lead people to be happy. Um, for the vast majority of people trapped in poverty, of course, uh, an improvement in their income would help them. Uh, but for, uh, let's say, you know, the top 10% uh, of the population, um, increasing their material um, worth is, is probably not going to have a great deal of impact on, on their happiness. And I think that the problem a lot of people have is... Um, what we call um, hedonic adaptation, which is you get used to stuff very quickly. Um, so you get a new car and you really love it and it feels great, but within six, three, six, 12 months, whatever it may be, it's just your car, right? Your kids are in the back, they've scuffed up the back seats, they've put their muddy boots on it, uh, the dog's been in the boot, and it, it's really not a new car. And it, it, it's devalued quite a lot in your own eyes, let alone its, its economic worth. Um, and so we, we, we're on this, what they call the hedonic treadmill, um, that we, we adapt very fast to uh, our environment and our, on our material uh, ownership. Um, and this rang true with me because when I was young, I spent a long time traveling the world. Uh, and some of the poorest people were amongst the, the happiest I've ever met. I was traveling in, in Thailand and there were people who essentially had very, very little, and yet they were absolutely uh, some of the nicest, friendliest people I'd ever met, and they were willing to share what little they had with me, a stranger just traveling through their village. Um, and I started reading uh, both science and then the Dalai Lama uh, on, on happiness. And, and the Dalai Lama is an interesting man because he's very, uh, obviously a very spiritual individual, but one who is absolutely certain that if science proves something that he believes to be wrong, that he will update his beliefs. Um, and... There I found uh, a, a lot of wisdom about um, the, the way to be happy is, is not uh, surrounding oneself with materialistic possessions, um, but experiences. Uh, and to me, that, that really rings true. And I think too many people focus far too much on, on, uh, on money um, and materialistic pursuits rather than on thinking about what might make them um, a happier individual. Tom Gilovich, I know, has written some research that echoes exactly what you're saying. Experiences are far more lasting and social than mere objects. 
So I know I only have exactly, you for a limited. Right? Yep, I know I only have you for a limited amount of time. Let's jump to our speed round. Um, normally these are ten questions, but given our circumstances, we're going to keep them to five. Uh, tell us what you are watching today. What are you streaming on Netflix or any other service? What are you podcasting or listening to? I am something of a Luddite, I confess. I, I'm probably much more likely to be found reading a book than, than I am watching television. But I have to say, uh, on Netflix, I did thoroughly enjoy Stranger Things. Uh, that, to me, was a, a, a very well-made and entertaining program. If you like Stranger Things, let me recommend Electric Dreams. I think that's Amazon Prime, um, but it's a similar concept. We'll see, we'll see if you like that. Uh, oh, early mentors. We'll have a look at it. Early mentors. Um, who influenced your career? Uh, Albert Edwards, above and beyond all else. Um, my, my, uh, we spent, gosh, nearly 18 years working together, I think. Um, and he had a huge impact on me from when I, I was joined uh, the team he was on when I was uh, a junior economist way back in all those years ago. Um, and watching the way that Albert worked and thought. Um, really did um, define the way that, that today I, I work and think. Hmm, quite interesting. You mentioned you're spending a lot of time reading. Tell us some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, finance, or anything else. What have you been enjoying, uh, and what are you looking forward to reading? I, I try to read fairly widely. Um, I, I think one can often find insights into all sorts of problems um, from, from very different perspectives. But I think um, my favorite investment book uh, is probably Seth Klarman's Margin of Safety, which we've, we've uh, mentioned earlier. I think there is uh, a tremendous amount of, of value in there. Um, outside of that, I'm currently reading a book on biomechanics. Um, I, I, my big passion outside of investing is, is taekwondo. And um, I was fortunate enough last week to take part in a seminar with uh, one of the, the Russian grandmasters, um, Grandmaster Kang. And uh, he's a, a big exponent of, of understanding biomechanics to, to improve our taekwondo performance. Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to uh, understand how physics applies to the human body right now. Huh. Give us one other. What else are you reading and enjoying? Um, what else am I reading? Enjoy? I actually enjoy a, a really my guilty pleasure is airport thrillers. Um, I, I will read almost any airport thriller. Uh, when I'm stuck on a plane, I, I will quite happily dig into pretty much any thriller. Um, so uh, the lower brow, the better. Uh, give us an author's name of these low brow thrillers. Uh, me, I, I kind of, uh, I, I do like uh, Mark Bingham. He, he writes a series of, of, uh, of detective novels that I find um, most enjoyable. What sort of advice would you give a recent college grad who is thinking about going into the investment field? Don't do it. <laughs> Go and do Explain something useful why. with your life instead. No, I, look, I think that, um, that investing needs bright, sensible people, but I kind of think there's an awful lot else that pe we need in this world, and investing is, is probably not the, the highest and best pursuit. Um, I think far too many people who go into investing are, are kind of blinded by the dollars, um, and so I, I think um, go and become a doctor or an engineer or, or something that might actually help humanity. <laughs> and our final question what do you know about your chosen field of investing today that you wish you knew 30 years ago when you were first getting started? Oh, man, that's such a good question. I think 
Um, I, I wish I knew not to be so confident. Um, my, my, my very first uh, job was as a, uh, an FX strategist, and I had an incredibly humbling lesson where I, um, I recommended a position uh, that was short the Swedish krona um, based on some very bad economic analysis that I'd done. Uh, it turned out eventually to be correct, but in the first week that we had that trade on, um, the, the head of the Forex division uh, told me we lost more money in that, uh, on that trade than I made in, in an entire year. Now, I was a graduate, so I didn't make a huge amount, but it was an incredibly humbling experience. Uh, and I think um, the older I get, the, the less certain I am about almost everything, um, which is, is, I'm not sure it's a good thing or not, but certainly I wish the younger me had not been quite as arrogant and um, confident as, as I was. We have been speaking with James Montier. He is the he is a member of the GMO asset allocation team. He is the author of such books as Behavioral Investing, A Practitioner's Guide to Implying Behavioral Finance, The Little Book of Behavioral Investing, and Value Investing, Tools and Techniques for Intelligent Management. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the prior 300 such conversations we've had before. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put together these conversations each week. Charlie Vollmer is my audio engineer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Boyle is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>